This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This morning on Saturday Breakfast, we are talking about metacognition. How do we strike that balance between getting our students to think about their thinking and to think about the subject knowledge we actually need to teach them? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. A very good morning to you on this Saturday, the 3rd of June, 2023. We are the final weekend of the half-term holiday. We are the end of the final holiday before the summer. Um, I've just been looking at a few tweets um, as the as the intro was playing, and people are already beginning to tweet about what they are doing, where they are going for the summer, and when they break up. I always find this conversation quite interesting, that um, we begin to find out who breaks up earlier than whom um, and exactly how long people's summers last for. I personally am feeling very grateful at the moment. We only have five weeks at my school. My last day is, I believe, the 7th of July, something like that. Yeah, the 7th of July. Um, So I have just 25 school days left until the summer. Um, I don't know about you, but this year has seemed to me like quite a long one, this academic year. Um, I've said before that I feel like 2023 is going quite quickly, Um, but I feel like this academic year has been quite a long one. Um, The autumn term always seems to stretch. Um, that, That time between going back in September and Christmas is always a very, very long one. I suppose because it is, um, you know, for most of us, it's 14, 15 weeks plus a half term. So that is a very long stretch of time. Then when we come back after Christmas, it's always that very quick downhill slope towards exam time. Um, But I actually found the spring term to be very, very long as well. That seemed to keep going. Then when we came back after the Easter holiday, I thought those first two weeks went really, really quickly. But then we got to the coronation and those three weeks between coronation and half term, I thought really dragged. Um, They kind of never seemed to end. And now here we are, the end of the half term on that downward slope, as I've said, varying. I've seen people breaking up as early as the beginning of July. Um, I think I've seen uh, like the 30th of June has already been somebody's finishing date that I've seen. Um, I've seen others going as late as the 21st of July. Uh, so this this final term is variable uh, for for all of us. But hopefully, hopefully, whether you are going just four weeks or whether you are going seven, it will be a, a nice 
relaxed, easy one for you. Of course, our students, those of us who teach um, students who take final exams at this time of year, they will be finishing up their exams over the next few weeks. Uh, we've got quite an intense couple of weeks coming up as they finish off lots of paper twos um, happening. So for those of you who are not in the the English system or for whom it has been a little while since you were in the system, um, at this time of year, our 16-year-olds and our 18-year-olds are taking their terminus exams, uh, GCSEs for our 16-year-olds, A-levels for our 18-year-olds, or the International Baccalaureate equivalents. And we have most, uh, most subjects have their exams split over two or three papers. Um, in modern languages, for example, uh, for the GCSE, so the exams that our 16-year-olds take, they tend to be split um, across the four skills. So there will be a paper for listening. There is a, a paper in inverted commas for speaking, uh, but that's a, a, a live coursework style exam with the class teacher. Uh, then there are papers for reading and writing, which are either sat as two separate papers or as one combined paper, depending on the type of exam you sit. In classics for GCSE, depending of course on which classical subject you take, um, there is usually a an unseen literature paper um, which covers comprehension and translation of literary passages that are not on the um, on the the syllabus, um, and then there is a choice amongst verse literature, prose literature, and culture that can be taught. Then at A-level, for modern languages, we tend to have a paper that is uh, listening, reading, and translation, um, a paper that is essay writing and translation, and then of course, a separate speaking paper. And for classics, again, it's usually three papers, uh, depending on which language you take, split among the different types of literature that are studied. So exams tend to run two or three papers set across two or three different days um, within the kind of six to eight week period that the exams take place. So most subjects, I won't say all subjects, but I could be wrong on that. Most subjects will have had a paper one already at least, um, and we'll have a paper two coming up after the holiday. Some subjects have not um, have not had theirs yet. I know that IGCSE Spanish, for example, that's coming up on Tuesday. Um, whereas IGCSE French, we had ours a couple of weeks ago. Um, and because that's all sat on the same day, they do their listening and then they go off and do their reading and writing. Um, it's kind of an intense hour and a half of their language and then that's done. So good luck to all of our students who are in the midst of exams. Good luck to any teachers who are in the midst of exams. Maybe you are improving your subject knowledge um, in an area. Maybe you are looking to become qualified in an area outside of what you currently teach. And so we're taking exams for that. I hope that you do well. Um, good luck to my listeners who are in um, university education. I know quite a few of you are. And so you will be, I'm sure, handing in assignments. I've got an assignment due 
in 18 days. Um, my first doctoral assignment is due on the 20th of June, which in fact is 17 days because I've just realized it's the third. Um, so good luck to you too. Good luck to everybody who is doing something exciting, who is doing something challenging at this time of year, because of course it is the summer and summer is the time when people want to be um, enjoying themselves. People want to be out doing something different. And so it can be really hard, and it is really hard on our young people, um, that we are asking them to be indoors revising um, or, I don't know, sitting in a park revising, you know, focusing on, on their future when all they want to do is, is being out and having fun. But it is an important time. It is a very important time for all of them and for all of us. So good luck to everybody who is sitting an exam right now. Um, I hope that you get the results that, that you want. And I hope you get the results that are a true and accurate reflection, uh, not just of what you can do, but of the work that you have put in. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The debate around immigration took a turn towards education this week as the UK government announced that foreign postgraduate students on non-research courses will no longer be able to bring family members to the UK. According to the BBC, the University of Wolverhampton has already criticised the new plan. Whilst Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said the move would help bring migration down, Dr Rachel Morgan Guthrie from the university said students who came with a support network were more likely to succeed. Last year, 135,788 visas were granted to dependents of foreign students, nearly nine times more than in 2019. In the same period, 680,000 foreign students studied in the UK. There was also division within the government as some wanted to see the ban on dependents extended to all postgraduate students, whilst others, including Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, argued that there were economic benefits both to universities themselves and the wider community. Vapes have regularly appeared as a topic of concern for many teachers, and a recent report into substances found in illegal vapes is likely to raise further issues. The BBC reports that vapes confiscated from school pupils contained high levels of lead, nickel and chromium. The results of the test showed that children using them could be inhaling twice the safe limit of lead and nine times the safe amount of nickel. High levels of lead exposure can affect the central nervous system and brain development. The majority of the vapes analysed were deemed illegal and had not been tested before being sold in the UK. So-called highlighter vapes, designed in bright colours to look like highlighter pens, contained unsafe levels of the metals coming from the e-liquid. The government has allocated £3 million to tackle the sale of illegal vapes, but critics say it is not enough to deal with concerns around the number of children gaining access to these products.
In Scotland, school meal debt could be scrapped in some additional areas after North Ayrshire Council agreed an action to investigate the impact the debt was having on families and schools. Head teachers of local schools are regularly reminding parents they owe money, according to the story in the Daily Record. Twelve councils across Scotland have already abolished this type of debt. The increase in families struggling with paying for meals has been attributed to the cost of living crisis. Many schools have reported parents struggling to feed children and resorting to sending pupils to school with inadequate packed lunches or, in extreme circumstances, keeping children off school to avoid accruing more debt. Finally, and staying with the topic of food, STV reports that in Glasgow, free school meals have been so popular that head teachers have had to stagger lunch times to ensure everyone can eat comfortably. The increased uptake of children in P1 to P5 accessing a free meal has again been attributed to the cost of living crisis, meaning more families are needing to access certain benefits. But at least everyone is getting a good meal and the staggered breaks have helped kitchens and dining halls to cope. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm considering how easy it is to get distracted when researching on the internet. I'm putting myself in the shoes of a young person and I've set myself a task of writing a report on the greatest invention of all time. I'm also not going to use ChatGPT. So, my first online search shows a lot of people claim the wheel is the greatest invention. And let's face it, there are a lot of them around. There are 9 million bicycles in Beijing, and that's a fact. That's 18 million wheels just on bikes in one city, if we assume nobody has a tricycle. This led me to want to know how many bicycles there are in the world. The answer I found was an estimated 1 billion. That's 2 billion wheels, again assuming nobody has a tricycle. Now I want to know how many wheels are there in the world. Another search tells me there's an estimated 37 billion, 24 of these billion being toys, and the next biggest share of 8.4 billion being on cars. A quick scan of the results page poses an additional question I hadn't considered. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? Well, I simply have to know. In a few clicks, I find out it's estimated there are 48 billion doors in the world. So based on this research, there are more doors and isn't a door a great invention? Yet it's not been proposed as one in my prior searches. And if there are that many doors, how many hinges must there be? The amazing thing about the internet is that there's always an answer. And the way search engines deliver those answers are designed to keep you interested and active. So potentially you see more ads and make them more money, which doesn't help get that report written, does it? Does your school teach young people how to research effectively? Do our young people realise how much they are advertised at? I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, when I get in touch at TC Radio Official, I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. There's an episode of the workplace comedy Abbott Elementary, which deals with um, something very similar to what Steve was just talking about. The the show depicts a young teacher, a new teacher, who is teaching for the first time um, in an elementary school. And he isn't sure why his students are asking questions that he deems irrelevant. So he's doing some some maths, some some word problems. And it's, it's something about um, farmers and chickens and how many eggs they collect. And the kids are asking questions um, about the relationships between the chickens and, and how many different chickens there are and the, the 
the breeds of chickens and all that sort of thing. And, and the teacher can't understand why any of the questions that he's being asked are relevant to the problem at hand. But two of the seasoned teachers in the show point out to him that these questions are important to the children because they are what the children want to know. And while they might not answer the question that he is posing, the children find it difficult to concentrate on finding the answer until they've had the questions that they need to be answered, answered. And I think quite often that is something that we ignore in our teaching, is the fact that we have a plan, we have something that we know our students need to know. But that might not be the same thing as what they want to know. And I think certainly in, in the English system, we don't reward our students for finding out things that they want to know. They are rewarded for learning the things that we think they need to know. They are rewarded for knowing what the syllabus tells us they need to know. But there is very little opportunity, particularly as you go higher and higher up the system. Um, and especially when you get to the GCSE years, so between the ages of 14 and 16, ironically, when so many students are at risk of being turned off of education, there is very little scope for them to explore the, the stuff about our subjects that they want to know, to have answered the questions that they want to have answered, uh, because we have to be so focused on teaching a curriculum, because we have to be so focused on getting them through an exam um, that, that dictates what we have to teach them. And so I think, you know, yes, I agree with Steve, we do need to make sure that our students can research effectively. Um, because, you know, as I said, um, I'm writing an assignment right now uh, on research methods, and I've fallen down so many rabbit holes um, of things that interest me, you know, so I've got, um, my, my essay is only 3,000 words long, and I already have a 1,000 words on the ancient Greek philosophers who kind of came up with some of the different research concepts that we still use. Um, but I don't have that much time to to dedicate to that in my essay because I've got a whole conversation to have about research methods. Um, so, you know, I have wasted, I suppose, from my essay's point of view, a lot of time reading different things about Plato and Aristotle. Um, but I found it interesting and and I wanted to know. And so I'm glad that I spent that time. It may not inform my essay, um and it may not get me extra marks uh when the essay comes back but it has broadened my own knowledge it has broadened my own interest and i don't know the more i think about it the more i think that exams and certificates and diploma now don't get me wrong i will not do a course if there's not a certificate at the end of it um i only ever do anything so that I can have that certificate of completion. They are very important to me, but they shouldn't be goals in and of themselves, I don't think. I think exams, certificates, qualifications, they should be benchmarks. They should be um, proof of our learning, uh, proof of our stage of learning, instead of something specifically for which we study. 
yeah. Unfortunately, I don't know how we we go about that uh, without overhauling the whole system, which, as many people who have come before me will attest to, it's uh, it's not an easy thing to do. This actually ties in quite nicely to what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about metacognition and cognition and how we strike the balance between the two. Metacognition is a big buzzword in education right now. The idea that we should be getting our students to think about their learning, to think about how they learn, to, to make sure that we move them beyond learning styles, um, because we all know that we have students who will confidently come into our classroom and say, oh, I would rather not do this activity today, please, sir, because I'm a kinesthetic learner. So unless I'm up and moving, I can't learn because uh, someone has told them about VAC learning styles um, without pointing out that um, they were massively disproven. Um, before they were even taught at teacher training colleges, they had been disproven. Um, and, and to get them thinking about what learning actually means to them so that we can move beyond buzzwords, we can move beyond soundbites of learning and, and actually get them to think about how they best assimilate knowledge. But we also have packed curricula that we need to, to, to teach them. We also have actual subject stuff that they need to learn in order to pass these exams that they take at the end. And it can be really, really difficult to balance those two things. It can be really hard in a lesson to demonstrate metacognition and cognition. It can be really hard to get them to think about their learning while getting them to actually learn something. And so that's what I want to discuss today. I want to look at metacognition. I want to look at why it's become so important in education. Uh, and I want to think about some different ways in our subjects that we can encourage metacognitive thinking if we are going down the route that that is important while not neglecting the, the bread and butter of our subjects, the stuff that we are interested in uh, which is why we teach our subjects in the first place. So we're actually going to get meta about metacognition to start with. We are going double meta um, because you know me by now. You know that I'm a linguist. You know that I can't talk about anything without picking the word apart. So that's where we're going to start. The meta in metacognition is a preposition. Meta means beyond. It means on top of it means above. Okay, so we, we hear about meta in all sorts of different ways. I suppose the most famous right now is the metaverse, um, because meta is how Facebook has kind of rebranded its um, overarching company. And so it's being used in the tech sphere quite a lot, particularly when we think about AI, particularly when we think about the kind of lives that we lead online and what is real versus what is not real. And meta quite often has that connotation right now of being not real, um, which of course is, is, is not what it means at all. It just means above. It means looking at something from an outside point of view. So we've got meta. Then we've got cognition. Cognition comes from the Latin verb um, Cognosco, cognoscere, which means to learn or to get to know. 
Um, it means to recognize, it means to be acquainted with somebody. Um, it actually also means to apprehend, it can mean to stop, um, to stand in the way of. Um, if we use it in the past tense, it can mean to understand, to perceive, or to know. Okay, so metacognition then is this idea of going above knowledge, going on top of learning, going over recognition. It is essentially recognizing how you recognize. Praveen has just texted in. Hello, Praveen. It's really lovely to have you here today. Um, you can, of course, if you are on the Podbean app, you can follow Praveen's example and text in with your thoughts on metacognition and cognition. I am more than happy to hear those. You can tweet me if you've got any thoughts on what we're talking about today. I am at Mr. D. Lester, M-I-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, all one word, or you can text the Teachers Talk Radio. Um, uh, you can tweet us, I'm sorry, at TT Radio Official, and be part of this conversation. I'm really, really excited to hear what different people have to say. So that's what we mean about metacognition. It's this idea of being aware of, reflecting on what you know and what you are aware of. Um, writings about metacognition, of course, are not new. Uh, they actually date back to Aristotle, uh, who has already had a shout out in the show today. Um, but Aristotle wrote two works. He wrote On the Soul and he wrote Parwa Naturalia, uh, both of which deal with this idea of metacognition, of knowing what you know. Um, On the Soul is a, a religious work, almost, where Aristotle discusses the different kinds of souls that different living things have. Um, and his idea was that each soul has a different operation, a different idea. Um, so he talked about how plants, for example, are able to be nourished, to nourish other animals and to reproduce. And he argued that they have the most basic soul that it is possible for a living organism to possess. Um, you then have a step up in your type of soul um, where you have sense perception and self-motivation and then you step up again to the human soul uh, which has all of those things plus intellect. Um, now of course soul in English is quite a loaded word, it has all of these religious connotations. Um, Aristotle's idea was a bit less religious, um, it's a bit less loaded um, it essentially boils down to being the form of something, the essence of something. Um, and Aristotle ultimately held that it was the, the intellect, the self-awareness that humans have that, that separates us from the other animals, uh, which meant that we have this highest version of the soul. So for Aristotle, it was in fact our ability to reflect our ability to be metacognitive that separated us from plants and from what are quite often termed in translations lower animals. Um, Parla Naturalia, um, which is often translated as short treatises 
on nature. Um, that's a collection of seven works that Aristotle wrote discussing, again, natural phenomena involving the, the human body, animal bodies and the soul. Um, Aristotle wrote a lot about biology. Um, so the, the Paranatoralia boiled down to um, a book about sense, a book about memory, a book about sleep, a book about dreaming, a book about predicting the future through dreams, um, a book about how short life is, uh, and a book about the stages of life, which that's quite an interesting one because it's called um, On Youth, On Age, On Life, On Death and On Respiration. And I like the fact that respiration is kind of thrown in there um, on the par with youth and age, life and death. And then I like the fact that it isn't balanced with anything. Uh, we've got youth and age, which perform a balance. We've got life and death, which perform a balance. And then respiration is just stuck on there on the end, because I suppose there isn't a balance for respiration um, other than suffocation. Um, but again, in, in the Paranaturalia, he talks about this idea that humans are separate from animals because we have this reason, because we have this rationality, and we can use this reason, we can use our rational thinking um, in order to be better. We then basically skip forward almost 2,000 years. Uh, when we come to the work of psychologist John Flavel in 1976, um, and he actually gave metacognition its label. Um, he defined it as knowledge about cognition and control about cognition. So he separated it into these two distinct areas, knowing about what you know and being in control of what you know. And I think in education, we focus a lot on this knowing about what we know. We get our students to reflect a lot on uh, how they learn. And we call that metacognition. But we tend to ignore the being in control. Um, and I think that says a lot about how teachers like to operate, because I think an uncomfortable truth among lots of teachers is we like to be in control of our classroom. We like to be in control of the flow of knowledge. Um, quite often that is for our students own good so that they don't go off and learn things that actually will will not be of any use to them. Um, however, we define use. Uh, so they don't go off and learn things that are just abjectly wrong. Uh, because I've had that before. I've had children come in really, really proud to tell me of these new words that they've learned in, in French. Uh, and then it turns out that, in fact, they were just on Google Translate and had made a mess of what they had tried to say, unfortunately. And then you have to find a nice way to kind of unpick that, undo that learning uh, so that they can learn the actual things that they want to know. So I think it's quite natural that we tend to focus on knowing about what we know and ignore letting our students be in control of what they know. But I think that control is really important. I really do. Because our young people have very little control over their world. You know, again, particularly as we get to 
the the teenage years, the kind of the YA, the young adult years, our students are starting to feel like they're adults. They are starting to feel like they are grown up, and yet they still have very little control over their world. They still have to ask us to go to the toilet, a, a basic human need. They are told when they can eat. They are told how to dress. They go home and they are told to do their chores. They are still, despite feeling like adults, despite wanting to be treated like adults, they still actually have very little control over how their lives work. Um, I do think that the explosion in vaping that has happened over the past couple of years is a response to that, because that's something over which they do have control. You know, the vapes are marketed at kids, um, but they can go and buy them. They're not supposed to. They're not supposed to be able to, but they can go and find somebody who will sell them a, a vape they can surreptitiously use it on their way to school, they can sneak into the school toilet and puff in between lessons, whatever it might be, and that gives them some kind of control, it gives them something in their day over which they have control um, in a life that they otherwise feel quite powerless. And so I think that if we allow our students greater control over their learning and if we teach them how to be in control of what they know then that might give them a greater sense of purpose it might give them a greater sense of power which i think in the long run will only be beneficial um for not for their mental health absolutely but also for their learning because it will teach them what it is to want to learn something so we do need to go back to Flavel, I think. We need to go back to his original ideas, um, his original concepts of metacognition, and, and not ignore them. So metacognition, then, is this awareness, this understanding of your thought process. And depending on the age of the children you teach, that can be boiled down to cognition about cognition. If you want to get to um, explore their vocabulary, to expand their vocabulary, it can be knowing about knowing, or it can be thinking about thinking. And I think those are not all the same thing. Thinking isn't the same as knowing, and knowledge isn't the same as cognition. And so I think it's really important to pull these things apart and to consider all of the different things that they mean. So metacognition then really is the process of learners planning, monitoring, evaluating, and making changes to their own learning behavior. Because actually what is the point of thinking about your thinking if you're not going to make changes to it. It is exactly as Boogie Nights has said, Boogie Nights has texted in, and he said the power of choice. And that's exactly what it is. It's about giving our learners as much choice as we feasibly can give them. So it's important then to think about these two dimensions of metacognition, the metacognitive knowledge and the metacognitive regulation. So metacognitive knowledge is the learner's knowledge of their own cognitive abilities. I'm good at maths. 
I'm good at music. I enjoy um, word problems. It's about the learner's knowledge of specific tasks and the different strategies that they have to solve tasks and when is appropriate to use those strategies. So if, for example, you are looking at poetry and you are looking at the metaphors and similes used within a, uh, a poem, it's important for your learner to know that the metaphors and similes that they are studying are complex but to break down that complexity they can read through the passage slowly they can reread it they can pause over words that they don't understand they can look them up in dictionaries they can read out loud to get a sense of the rhythm they can look for clues so even within just this strand of metacognitive knowledge We've got these three different layers that children need to know about their cognitive ability, the tasks that they will be asked to perform and the strategies in order to perform those tasks. Then we have the metacognitive regulation and that's how learners, that's how learners monitor and control their cognitive process. So, for example, um, a student is doing some data collection. They sit down and they use the mean to work out the average because we all like using the mean. It's the, the easiest way to work out an average. It's it's tends to be what we mean when we say average. But they then realize that they're operating with a discrete data set. And so the mean, in fact, is not the best way to analyze this data. They're going to use the mode instead. So that's monitoring their cognitive process. It's when they realize that they need to reread that poem with the similes and the metaphors several times in order to understand. And that at one point as they're reading, they need to focus on the hard words so that they can understand the poem properly. It's that control, it's that choice that they have. And so this is all stuff that we know already. This is all stuff that is important for us to consider when we are planning a lesson. But why is it important? In 2009, Hattie did a, um, a study called Visible Learning and answered this exact question. Um, Hattie looked at all sorts of different, um, different teaching methods, how they linked to metacognition and how the different activities that they um, that they elicited within their lessons impacted learning. And the most effective method Hattie found was reciprocal teaching, was the, the age-old tradition of getting children to teach to other children. Because of course, as we all know, teaching is the best way to learn something. 
because it really it tests your limit of knowledge it makes you aware of what you don't know and again as teachers that's something for us to um to be very aware of is the limit of our own knowledge so that the children understand that it's okay to go and look things up i've said before how i am more than happy when a student asks me for a piece of vocabulary and my answer is i don't know because i think that's really really important i think it's very important for children to see me going away and looking things up because it is not possible for me to know all of the vocabulary in all nine of my languages and i think if children see teachers as being the pinnacle of the knowledge and they don't see us having to go and look things up, then they will assume that the only way you can be good at a subject is to be able to hold all of that knowledge in there in your head. And that then will have a negative effect on their self-esteem because they will sit there and think, well, I can't hold all of this knowledge in my head. I need to go and look things up. Therefore, I'm not as good as my teacher. Therefore, I will never be good at this subject. And so I think part of this metacognition is, is getting them to understand their limits and when it's necessary to go and look things up. And we need to model that within our own teaching. And I will even do that with very young children. I will pretend that I don't know a very basic piece of vocabulary so that they can see me going and looking that up in the dictionary or so that they can look it up for themselves in the dictionary and feel like they are teaching me something. It took me a long time to get to that point, I'm gonna be honest, um, because particularly as an early career teacher, as a newly qualified teacher, I very much held this idea that as the teacher, I was supposed to know everything. Um, I kind of held on to that illusion for, for longer than I care to admit. And one of the most freeing things and one of the best things for my practice as being um, open enough and confident enough in my own abilities to go, actually, no, I don't know. Let's go and look that up. So reciprocal teaching, I went off on a bit of a tangent. Reciprocal teaching was the best way, according to Hattie's study, of learning. Then came feedback. Then came teaching students self-verbalization, teaching students the ability to express what they do and do not know. Then came metacognition strategies. Then underneath all of those things came direct instruction, came what we consider to be teaching. Me standing up at the front of the classroom and telling them things. So in fact, my role as the teacher, if we're using Hattie as a, a reliable source, it shouldn't be standing up at the front with my PowerPoint vocabulary. It should be more about getting the children to explore for themselves, giving them feedback on what they have explored, giving them feedback on whether the, the sentence that they have written using Google Translate makes sense or not and why and then having them teach those things to somebody else. Now, of course, if I'm in a one-to-one -one situation, 
or I suppose a one to two situation because I need my student to be able to teach something to somebody else, then that can work perfectly. If I'm in a one to 34 situation, that's much, much harder because I don't have the capacity in my 45 minute lesson to go around all 34 of my students and give them the individualized feedback that they need on what they've just discovered so that they can then go and teach it to somebody else. So of course we do have to be cognizant of the limitations of a classroom situation. But it is interesting from the point of view of our show today that metacognition strategies rank above direct instruction in terms of power of learning, in terms of the teacher being what she termed an activator of knowledge. So we need to think about the strategies that we are using to get our children to learn. We have got organisational and transformative strategies. Okay, so those are the overt or covert rearrangement of instructional materials. It's getting your students to plan their essay before they write it. It's getting them to write a summary of something they've read for somebody else. And that is, according to Hattie's study, that's the most effective metacognitive strategy for learning. Students hate it when we tell them to plan their essay. They don't want to. Um, and I know certainly in my practice, I have not always explained why planning an essay is important. I tell them to plan an essay because they need to remember all their points. So that's kind of the point that I make. Plan your essay so that you don't forget to say something. What I very rarely teach them is that it's important to plan an essay because it will get them to think about their thinking, which in turn will make them more successful. So that's a change based on the show that I am already going to make on my, uh, in my practice. Summarising is quite interesting because I think particularly if you teach a humanities subject, summarising can be a good piece of homework to set. So let's say you are teaching philosophy to at A level. So let's say you have got um, 17 year olds who are taking your philosophy class. You can give them each an article to read. Ask them to summarise it as their homework, and then they present their summary at the beginning of the next lesson. They then not only have to um, digest the article that they have been given and then be able to explain it in a way that is understandable to other people, which as I said on the show a couple of weeks ago is at the core of teaching but they can then also learn about the article based on, uh, sorry, they can also learn about other articles based on what their peers have read without having to go away and read them themselves. Of course, the danger of that is if the student has, um, uh, has misunderstood the article, because then 
they will be putting forward false knowledge that you as the teacher will have to undo. But as the teacher, that is in fact our job to undo misconceptions, because as I said back on the show about um, social constructivism, if you haven't listened to that show, please do go back and listen to it. There is no blank slate that we are teaching. Our students come to us with an understanding of our subject or what they think is an understanding of our subject. And it is our job as their teacher to build on what is correct understanding and undo what is incorrect understanding. So we need to be really clear with them about why we are getting them to organize, why we are getting them to transform. And it is to improve their own understanding. And again, this is a way that we are able to both teach content and teach metacognitive structures. Because we can get them to read these articles, we can get them to summarize them, we can get them to think. Beneath organization and transformativity in Hattie's survey came self-instruction self-verbalizing the steps to complete a given task. Because as much as we like to believe that children understand our step-by-step instructions, as much as we like to believe that we have, um, that we have broken them down as much as possible, that's not always going to be the case. And it is much easier to understand an instruction if you reframe it, if you transform it, so we are coming back to this transformativity, if you transform it into a way that you yourself understand. So self-verbalizing the instruction, reconsidering the instruction is really important. Uh, but good night, so I'm just going to jump on something that you just said. Um, you said, uh, if it's a scholarly journal, so these are the articles that I was just talking about, it's opinion-based and their own words. You're not allowed to press your own opinion onto an individual. All knowledge is opinion. We are now getting beyond metacognition and into ontology into how we all personally perceive the world. Now, ontology is deeply personal, which is where the muddiness of education comes into play. Because an ontology can basically be broken down into, I believe that there is an objective reality that can be um, expressed, or, I believe that everything happens through personal interpretation and therefore there is no objectivity. But of course, making that choice between whether you believe there is objective reality or not is a subjective choice. So we're not gonna deal with that one because that's something that is is very, very messy. Uh, and takes way more than the 39 minutes I've got left on today's show. But it is a very interesting 
point for us to make. Self-evaluation um, is actually tied with self-instruction on uh, in Hattie's um, in Hattie's study. Self-evaluation is, of course, very self-explanatory. It's setting standards for oneself and then using those for self-judgment. This is where success criteria come in. Now, success criteria go in and out of fashion along with writing down the learning objective. We have gone in the 16 years that I've been teaching um, and then, of course, the three years training I did before that, when I did my B.Ed., we have gone from giving learning objectives, but not success criteria, to giving learning objectives and success criteria, to writing down the learning objective and the success criteria, to writing down the learning objective, knowing that success criteria, but not having to write it down, to not giving success criteria and round again. So this is always a, um, a, a conversation that we have in teaching. But self-evaluation, having standards, knowing what the standards are and performing self-judgment is a metacognitive tool. And so if we are saying that metacognition is important, if we are saying that in our classroom we make use of metacognitive strategies, then we need to be using self-evaluation in order to get our children to learn. Uh, Boogie Nights, no, you have not offended me. Um, I'm sorry if I've offended you by not taking your call. I just have quite a lot to say um, on our topic today, uh, and I'm very mindful of my time. So I'm just making sure that um, that I get across everything that, that I need to say about this today. Of course, there is a an exam reason why we would encourage self-evaluation. Um, and that is that their exams will be marked by people who are not their teachers using a rubric that teachers know and so can share. And so getting them used to exam rubrics, getting them used to how their examiners will correct their work will help our students to um, to understand what they need to do in the exam in order to do well. Because, of course, you know, for as much as we have said that it's the knowledge that is important, we do know that ultimately our students are in our lessons in order to pass exams, in order to get qualifications in our subjects, which in turn means they need to know how to pass those exams, which again, is quite metacognitive. Knowing how to pass an exam is different to knowing the content of an exam, which is knowing how to get the grades that you need in order to get into university. Because whether we like it or not, 
that is quite often why students are in our classroom to get the grades that they need in order to function later on in life. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. In 1992, Perkins published a study um, which broke metacognition down into four levels. So we've got the two different types of metacognition. Okay, we have got the knowledge, so that's the learner's knowledge of their own abilities, their tasks, and their strategies. And then we've got the regulation, so that's how learners monitor and control their thought processes. We then have these four levels. There is tacit metacognition, which is really not being metacognitive at all. It's understanding that you can think about your learning, but not really putting any thought into it. Then we've got awareness. So that's beginning to think about metacognitive strategies. That's beginning to think about why thinking about your learning is important. Then there is strategic metacognition, which again tends to be where we focus our metacognitive teaching. Strategic metacognition is this idea that you will use metacognition in order to achieve your goals. So it's exactly what I just talked about, about passing exams, about making you aware of the rubric. And then the final step, what Perkins suggests we should be aiming for is reflective metacognition reflecting on your learning, reflecting on your learning strategies and learning how to get better, learning how to be a better learner. And of course, this is very individual. This is very personal. And children like to be individual. Children like to be the center of their world. And so I think if we encourage them to be reflective about their own learning, we can take that personalized personalization, we can take that desire for them to be individuals, and we can make that part of their world, we can make that centre to their learning process. But of course, we have to build time for that. And time is the enemy of all teachers. We all bemoan quite constantly the lack of time that we have. But if we really want to achieve metacognitive excellence, we need to build in that time to be reflective. Typically, in education, we say that we are promoting metacognition when we make our learning goals explicit, so when we give them the learning objective, when we give them strategies to achieve the objective. So again, everything that I was taught to do at university where you stand up at the board for two minutes and you go, today we are learning to conjugate the present tense 
in Latin. We are going to do that by looking at the infinitives of our first conjugation verbs and taking off the end the um, ending and adding the personal pronoun endings. So you're telling the children what they're going to learn and how they're going to learn it. You're raising that awareness. We do it by encouraging discussion of strategies in class, and that will help students to understand when to use certain strategies, what the impact is and why they work. Because again, we quite often don't go to that end stage. And I will do it. Um, there is a, a song that I'm sure all French teachers will be aware of, of the conjugation of aller in the present tense. That's really important because one of the easiest ways to form a future in French is to do just like we do in English and say, I am going to do something. I am going to go. I am going to play. And so there's a song and it's really earwormy and it gets caught in their heads about how to do I am going. And so I'll play that um, and, and I'll tell them that we're doing it because it's catchy and it will get stuck in their heads and they will remember. But I don't always remember to take it that final step and explain to them why they will remember. I don't always remember to tell them why earworms get caught in our heads and, and why they are so catchy and why that helps. Is it necessarily important? Does knowing why that happens improve their French? No. What's improving their French is the fact that it does get caught in their heads and they do remember. And I've heard them standing outside the exam hall, getting ready to go into their French exams, singing the song. But if they know why earworms help to remember something, maybe they can apply that strategy elsewhere. Particularly if I'm expecting them to also take an interest in their learning and go off and learn other things. And knowing that they can do that because they've all got YouTube there in their pockets. If they know why songs help them to retain information, they might be more likely to go away and look up a song in YouTube to help with the concept that they're struggling with. We also attempt to create environments that support the development of metacognition. Dirt has become quite important over the past few years. Um, directed improvement and response time. The idea that you give your students time in lessons to sit down and read your feedback and respond to it. That's creating that learning environment that supports metacognition because it is getting students to actually assimilate the feedback that you've given them. And as we saw from, um, from Hattie's study, feedback is the second most important thing that we as teachers of activators of knowledge can do. So we're already doing these things. We are already doing these things. But we do need to go a step further because it's like everything. If we're going to do this, then we should be doing it um we should be doing it properly so we need to get students to think about the questions that they should be asking themselves they're very good at 
asking us questions. They're really good at asking each other questions. But they are not so good at asking themselves questions. So what can they ask themselves before they start working, while they are working, and when they have finished working in order to learn about their learning? Before they start work, they can sit and they can ask themselves, is this similar to something that I've done before? Have I seen a task like this before? This is very important in exams. One of the things that we in foreign languages have been talking about a lot lately is how we don't always assess children using the same types of tasks that we use to teach them. So we will use one type of task in order to teach the vocabulary, be it a reading comprehension or a PowerPoint or something else. And then we will assess it using, you know, a traditional vocab test where they do translation from English into Chinese. But we have not done translation as part of our teaching process. So part of metacognition is getting our students to um, relate what they are doing back to something that they have done before, because that will make the whole process quicker for them. What do I want to achieve is the second question that they can ask before they start. This all comes from um, innerdrive.co.uk, by the way just so that I am adequately citing my sources. Now, what do I want to achieve is really interesting because as teachers, we can tell them, we can give them success criteria, but actually that's not what they want to achieve. That's what we want them to achieve. Having our learners set their own success criteria is a much better way of getting them to take control over their learning to take responsibility for their learning. So we can tell them what we think success looks like. And we can do the whole thing where we break down the, the success criteria into different medals. I used to do um, bronze medal, silver medal, gold medal, and the children would choose which medal they were aiming for in each lesson. But ultimately they need to decide what success looks like. And they should also ask themselves what they should do first. Is it necessary for them to work through the page in the, the textbook in order? Or can they pick and choose? If they can pick and choose and they decide to do the word search on the worksheet before they do the spelling test, why have they done that? What is the word search facilitating the spelling test doesn't. Because if we can get them to think about what they need to learn, and if we can get them as individuals to think about how they need to improve, are they more likely to pick the activity that will help that? Or are they still more likely to pick the activity that is the most fun? While they are on task, 
they can think about whether they are on track. They can think about what they do differently if they are not on track. And they can think about who they can ask for help. Boogie Nights, thank you for your um, opinions on my practice. Um, I am quite self-centered, to be honest. I think most people are self-centered. Um, I'm not quite sure how you have come to that opinion based on my talk of metacognition. Uh, but thank you for your insight. I very much appreciate it. As I've said, during the task, they need to think about how they stay on track, because as we know, that is something that our students struggle with. That is something that they find difficult, is keeping focused. And we've talked before on the show about how we can um, facilitate that, how we can make that easier for them. Is it about having the shorter activities because we know that they have got shorter attention spans? Or is it about giving them more autonomy, giving them more control over their learning? And then finally, when they are done with the task, they can ask themselves, what worked well? What could I have done better? And how can I apply what I've just learned to other situations? Now, if we go back to an old school style three part lesson plan where you have got your elicitation activity, then you have got your independent activity, and then you've got your plenary. We can work all of those things in. So our before the task questions can come during what used to be the elicitation. Our during the task questions can come during the independent activity. And our after the task questions can come during the plenary. But of course, this is the, what do I want to say, dichotomy that we have. This is the difficulty in teaching metacognition, because it has to come from the students. Because the whole point of these questions is that the students ask them. If we ask them, it takes that, um, that independence away from them. It takes that ability for them to learn away from them. And it just becomes their teacher asking them yet another question. And so it's about figuring out whether we actually want to train this, whether we want this to become part of a student's natural learning process, in which case it needs to become a whole school strategy so that children start doing it without thinking. Or do we want it to be a tick box exercise where we are standing at the front of the classroom and asking these questions so that we can be seen to be asking these questions? Because that's a whole different ballgame. There are some really good sentence starters for how we can prompt this amongst our children. We are learning to the old Walton Wilf for um for my primary colleagues out there giving the learning objective now again this is a big debate 
amongst teachers. How important is it for our children to know their learning objective? Well, actually, if you are promoting metacognition, it's very important. It's very important because how are the children supposed to reflect on what they're learning if they don't know what they're supposed to be learning? Was that easy or difficult for you? How did you find that? Now, I would never get them to answer that question out loud. I've never liked that. Um, I remember a time when it was all the rage to give children green and red cards and they had to put on their table the colour of card depending on how they were finding the activity. Um, and I always thought if I were in a learner's position, I would find that quite embarrassing. Um, so I never personally did that. But you could get them to have a journal. I really like the idea of children having learning journals, which they, they just have one of and they take it with them to all of their lessons and they just journal about how they found that lesson. And it doesn't need to be marked and it doesn't need to be looked at, but we get them into the habit of journaling their feelings about their learning process. Because writing is one of the best ways that you can reflect on something. I don't understand it either, so let's have a look together. Now again, depending on your confidence as a teacher, you may not like that one. But I think there is nothing wrong with pretending that you don't understand something. There's nothing wrong with pretending that something doesn't make sense. And actually, sometimes something doesn't make sense. If you're using a third party worksheet, if you're using a sheet that you've printed um, from the teacher's book instead of one that you've made yourself, you might not understand the question because it might not be phrased in a way that is clear to you, that is obvious to you. Because like I said at the top of the show, we have so many um, different resources available to us and everybody who writes the resources thinks that they have phrased it in a way that is um, that is clear and accessible, but we don't know that for certain. We only think things are clear and accessible because we wrote them, we understood it. So you might not understand and that's good for the children to see. Asking them whether a different approach will make it easier is a good way to, um, to, to get them to think about their thinking. Because it will teach them that there are different strategies and that the strategy that they have been learning might not be the best way for them. And ultimately, this is what education is about. Education is about finding the best way for our students to do something. And the best way for them might not be the best way for me, it might not be the way that the syllabus says they have to be able to do it, but as long as they can do it, as long as the outcome is the same, that's really all that matters. You can get them to change their own speech patterns. Uh, the way we speak is how we construct our identity, how we perform our identity. So getting them to think about how they are speaking to each other, to us, to themselves, is a way of getting them to be metacognitive. So getting them to be positive rather than negative. I think I've nearly got it instead of, oh, I've been working for ages and I can't do it. I'm not sure if that's right instead of, I think that's wrong. It means the same thing 
that that framing of the positive right versus wrong gives more of a, an ego boost to them. I've missed a step and I don't know what that step is. Getting them to recognize that they have skipped something in the outline, but then have not recognized what that skip was. That's all really important. Getting them to reflect on their study habits, actually reflecting on their study habits before and after exams. Talk to children when they've just taken an exam and they will tell you, they will all tell you, no matter how much or little work they did, oh, I didn't really revise, oh, I was busy doing this, this and this, oh, oh, oh. There are all sorts of, of excuses they come up with. And quite often this is the shield. They will do it because they don't want to admit that they tried just in case they fail. And it's not cool to try, so they won't say in front of their friends that they tried. And again, this is where journaling actually can get them to really open up and really be honest and really be reflective. Because actually, reflection, reflexivity doesn't mean anything if you're not being honest about it. So we need to get our students to reflect openly and honestly after an exam so that they can make those improvements, so that they can make those changes. So if we can get them to say, oh, I revised really hard for this, but I still didn't do very well, so I need to change my revision strategy. That's much more useful than if they say, oh, no, I didn't do anything, so next time I'll just revise because that's too woolly, that's too generic. And I think for those of us whose schools encourage our children to set targets each term, getting them to do this in class can, can facilitate that because it reinforces this idea that targets need to be smart. So what I've seen, and this is actually something I'm planning on doing on Monday, is I've seen annotated front pages of exams. So what I'm going to do with my students on, on Monday is I'm going to give them not a whole exam booklet, but just a front page. And the front page will have the instructions on. I'm just going to get them to annotate the instructions. I'm going to get them to rephrase what those instructions mean. Because exam front pages are always the same every single year. The only thing that changes on it is the year and the, the date and the timing. So if we can annotate those front pages and get them to understand it straight away, then I know that they will understand it when they go in to their exam. It means that they are reflecting on what they actually need to do when they go and sit that exam. And it means I'm relieving a layer of cognitive stress. I'm taking away a layer of cognitive load because when they go and sit their exam, they're not having to worry about the instructions because I've already been through it with them. So that's my plan for Monday. And the nice thing about my subject is I teach the international GCSE. So my instructions are all written in target language anyway. So when I do it in French, the instructions are all in French. So not only am I taking away that cognitive load of having to, of having to figure out 
what the instructions are telling me to do, I'm taking away the cognitive load of them being in French. And I'm teaching French by going through them because they will be in the imperative voice. And so we will be, um, we will be restudying that particular grammar point. What you can then do, and again, I'm not planning on doing this just in case I run out of time, but I will have the full paper in my back pocket just in case, is get them to annotate the whole rest of the paper. What is the point of the question? What is the question actually asking? Because then they will know what to revise. So ultimately, when we are planning a metacognitive session, it boils down to planning, having our students identify their learning goals and thinking about how they can meet them, which means we need to find ways to get their learning goals to align with our teaching goals. Monitoring. Students need to think about where they might go wrong before they even start. Think about ways to prevent that from happening. And then think about the efficacy of those, um, of those strategies when it's all over. Evaluating, considering their performance on the task, how they could improve their performance in future tasks. Practice and feedback, but feeding back not just on whether they got something right or wrong, so feeding back not just on the, the subject knowledge, but on whether the strategies they used were effective. And creating a supportive classroom environment, creating an environment that encourages and supports metacognition instead of just brushing it under the carpet. So we have over the last hour thought about lots of different metacognitive strategies, lots of different ways that we can get our children to think about their thinking. And hopefully what I've demonstrated to you is that this doesn't need to be set apart from everything else that we do. It doesn't need to be set apart from all of the um, all of the learning that needs to take place, all of the subject material stuff that needs to take place. It can be integrated. It's just that that integration needs to be deliberate. So it comes back down to this deliberate practice. It comes down to deciding that you are going to be a teacher that prioritizes metacognition in the classroom and merging that with what you are actually doing. It comes down, I think, to making sure that your students know exactly what we will be required of them in their exam, in their test, whatever it might be. And understanding that they can have an input on how they meet those end goals. They can have a say on how they learn. Uh, Tim has texted in. Thank you very much, Tim. Tim has some fascinating insights into metacognition today. Thank you. You are very welcome. I hope that... This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. 
our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. That is us done for today. Um, as always, the show for me is very much about how can I improve my practice and how can I use what I've learned in attempt to improve to help you guys to improve as well. And so it has been really interesting for me to think about metacognition, to think about how every time I've tried metacognition in my lessons in the past, it hasn't integrated very well with my lessons and to think about how I can go about integrating them. And then, like I said, I'm going to try this small scale project with one of my classes this week. I'm going to try some integration and we will catch up with that next Saturday on the show. I'll just do a little section um, talking to you about how that went. Please do stay on the network. We have a lot of fascinating insights from my co-hosts and other teachers coming up throughout the week. We have a very special Twitter space on Tuesday at 7.30pm UK time, where I will be presenting with some representatives from Pearson, and we will be talking about why you should learn a foreign language. We'll be talking about the importance of learning foreign languages. So that is Tuesday the 6th of June um, at 7.30pm UK time. Please do tune in if you are interested in language learning and you are available at that time. Like I said, stick around over the weekend, hear some of our other fascinating programming, and I will see you for breakfast next Saturday. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.